0: Jordan Shea is a Filipino-Australian writer and teacher, working across theatre and screen. After debuting his first play, two days shy of his 21st birthday, he went on to write plays across the independent sector before securing a place at the Victorian College of the Arts in Melbourne to study his master's degree in playwriting. Since relocating back to Sydney, he has become a distinguished Asian-Australian voice in the performing arts. His credits as a writer include Casa The House of Boundary Road, Liverpool, Cage, Barbaric Truth, Last Drinks, Little Differences, Cascadia and many more that have been developed by major companies and independent collectives. He is currently one of the Philip Parsons Fellows for Belvoir Theatre. Jordan has also worked as a producer and director on several projects. Today, he is our guest on Stages.
1: Yeah. So you got like a sturgeon up the top and now you got the crab down the bottom. Is that how you define yourself? (laughs) If you were a crustacean? No, no. I think I'm more like a lobster. A lobster. Yeah, I'm expensive and there's not much to me, you know. Did you like that film, The Lobster? No, no. I don't think I saw it. With Colin Farrell? No, I didn't see it. No. Right. Okay, no. I wish I did.
0: Um, Well, that's uh, ended that talking point.
1: Well, no, I mean, yeah, I've seen lots of other good films. I mean, I was obsessed with it. When was that released? Um, Probably 10 years ago.
0: Olivia Coleman's in it too.
1: Yes, I did. I did see that film, The Lobster.
0: Yeah, I was... (laughs) Oh, you meant
1: this old Berlin film because I go down to um, the uh, film club in Darlinghurst. you know that DVD store, that video store? And I don't think many people go to it much and i think i picked out this really old berlin film called the lobster that would be
0: dust lobster
1: yes it was yes <laughs> yes it was. no it was yeah because the guy down there kind of kind of knows me so not kind of knows what i like you know like obscure things things i picked up in drama school that he's got and you know yeah we just go for
0: it He gives me so much weird stuff it's great well welcome to stages thanks thank you you're you're one of uh only out of out of one hundred and you know forty-five interviews, you're one of about six who have only, have approached me and say, "Can I, can I be on the show?" Yeah, I'm desperate. I'm desperate. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, yeah. um, well, it's important for an artist to promote themselves, isn't it, to get their their th- name and and um, thoughts out there. I think it's important, but it's
1: also, you know, the thing that I love about stages and the guests is that it is preserving our history a lot our really young Australian arts history and I'm I guess I'm really obsessed with knowing what came before me yeah. you know and what, what's you know what's been done even little readings obscure readings that were done in theatres that don't exist anymore I love knowing that there were productions of you know certain things before so that's always yeah that's why I think that's the biggest reason is to make sure you can archive you know your thoughts and feelings about whatever questions yeah it's so important
0: Um, and you're quite right I mean I love it it keeps me going because I'm recording sort of vital oral stories yeah i think but not only with established legends but also emerging talents yeah you'd be aware that i've spoken to a few people who are your peers at the the start of their careers and you're you're now one of those so it's um it's great to get your stories of where you're at now yeah and then maybe you can come back in five years time and yeah we'll we'll do an update speaking of
1: emerging it's weird i turned 27 next week and i found out that I'm no longer classified as emerging in, in the bracket given, my, given what I've accomplished and my age. Someone told me this morning, they said, oh, I don't actually, they said it as a joke. They said, I don't think you're actually classified as emerging anymore. And I thought it was a joke, but then I did some serious research into um, age brackets on funding applications. Yes, I'm just slowly starting to leave the emerging category no. apparently, you, but do I, don't, I don't agree with that.
0: Are there um, awards categories of best emerging playwright? I wouldn't know. I guess I've left the category now. (laughs) I mean, what do you do? (laughs) You're no longer eligible anyway. No, no. (laughs) It's dreadful. So you're a a playwright, chiefly. Mm. Do you act as well? I did. I did. Is that how your career began?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, I really wanted to do it when I was a kid. You know, voices and mimicry and kind of comedy and all that. I really, I really desperately wanted to be in musical theatre. I wanted to be like an old-fashioned musical comedian. A character man? 100%, yeah. yeah. And there are heaps of reasons for that. Um, and writing kind of just came to me when I was at uni. I started, you know, kind of did this creative writing course and it really just started to, to breathe for me. And then I wrote my first play when I was about 20 yeah it, it I like it better now. I, I love being a writer. It's yeah it's my favorite thing sorry <laughs> it's the sparkling water. It is my favorite it is my favorite um, I guess occupation and I love it because the community is actually quite small and I think you know knowing about the canon and you know the, the different kinds of work that are coming through, especially in this recent, announcement of playwriting australia funding which i'm a part of like just to see to read the names there are names that i think will hold us up for the next 10 15 20 years and it's it's confident to say that in this you know pandemic that we're all living through you know so we can still develop that's the great thing
0: we don't have to stage anything we can just keep you know honing our craft it's going to force um considerable change isn't it the way that artists express themselves and audiences receive that. I mean, what that will be, I have no idea, but I'm sure something will evolve and things will be different. Yeah, that's...
1: Well, that's the big point. People need to accept that things are going to be different and that I think economically... I mean, I've been doing a lot of research about theatre in recessions because generally, uh, you know, it's not that promising. It relies on a lot of philanthropy. And I think it also relies on, you know, some pretty heavy bailouts. We've never seen anything like this before. Um, And a lot of groundwork as well to just put pressure on government and all that to make sure that they do consistently and continuously support this industry, this massive industry, you know, of people just wanting to get out there and create. But it will change. The stories will change. I I don't think you'll go to a play and, and not remember this time now. You know, whether it's a small inference, whether it's a play about the pandemic, which I really hope we don't see. Well, I mean, other periods,
0: we had all those AIDS plays. Yeah, and, um, yeah. A couple of 9-11 plays. But that's, that's a natural human response, isn't it? To sort of make art about it as a well, way, a cathartic way of dealing with that's it. That's right. And Tommy Murphy said to me the other day, he said
1: the most beautiful thing. World War Two gave us Waiting for Godot in Oklahoma.
0: Doesn't that... Right? That, yep. Doesn't that
1: just say everything? I mean, like...
0: I think the Black Plague gave us King Lear also. Didn't yeah, it? She, there you go. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: You know, it can give you two really That's different... That's fantastic way to look at it, yeah. And that really, that gave me something. Because I was quite sad when this all happened. Because I lost shows. And I thought, what's this going to mean? And then as an artist, you no doubt... I don't know how many young artists would admit this. You start to worry that people are going to forget about you. And... I think that's actually across the board, like a lot of artists. So, I really wanted to think, oh, what can I do? You know, do I need to create plays that deal with drama, or do I need to create light, funny comedies? And then you get there, and Tommy says something like that, and it just sets the piece for you. Yeah.
0: It made me feel very comfortable, you know, of where we are. Um, the term "unprecedented" is overused, but it's it's <laughs> it's so apt. Um, yeah. Because, you know, in times of trauma in the past, world wars, the Depression, people have flocked to the theatre as a form of escape and to be entertained. Theatre flourished, musicals flourished. Yeah. But that's not even a possibility. It's not. During this trauma.
1: No. And we are also seeing it kind of intersect with a global civil rights movement. Yep, Which, you know, these two things really do go hand in hand because everyone's going to deal with this differently, especially the marginalized. Um, And I don't know what that conversation's going to look like, but I hope it just is as rigorous and interrogative as possible. But the first thing people need to realize is that everything is going to change. We can't just flick the switch and go back to normal. Just won't. I'm about to head into a development in a couple of weeks, which will be my first creative endeavor since COVID hit. I'm so excited. I don't care whether it goes on next year, year after. The fact is, I've got my brain
0: firing and I'm ready, you know? Um, I'm going to answer that back in a minute. Well, aren't I a silly host? I didn't put it on uh, the phone on um, airplane mode. My apologies. Strefy. you're obviously not ready to go back to the theatre yet. No, no, no. (laughs) Well, I'd leave my phone on. It would be terrible. I would uh, disturb disturb the players on stage um are you a good audience member
1: yeah yeah very um i just don't i don't nothing can distract me when i'm there i think that's from being a kid and going to big musicals because i think when i first you know heard silence on stage i I thought you can't interrupt you cannot do anything to interrupt and working as an usher over the years, you know, I don't do that anymore. But you see your fair share of things that, that go wrong and things that happen. So yeah, you want to be, yeah, as attentive as possible. So you saw a lot of musicals in your youth. Yeah, I did because my parents got discounted tickets through the nurses' union. Right. But my mum and dad, um, they, they never really, they, it wasn't a thing on their radar. You know, an email would come through. Actually, no, it was a flyer on the wall because this was in 2000. A flyer on a corkboard at TAFE where my dad worked, and we would go. And it just wasn't something my parents would ever pay full price for. So, I saw um, Billy Elliot, Lion King. That was really special. For there's a story behind that. There's a reason why that's really special. Oh well, tell me. Can I? Yeah. Can I? So I remember seeing Lion King. We sat right at the back in the guards of the Capitol and I thought it was amazing and I got the program and I was obsessed with the program as a kid. I loved the pictures. I loved seeing where they trained was really cool and I opened the program and in the program there was a... a little headshot and obviously where the performers were from because Lion King was a very diverse show and it is, they come from all over the world to do the show and there was a guy in there and he had said he was of Filipino origin and I just went crazy because I I am too and I was nine and I just thought that's amazing, that's amazing, this is insane, I can't believe he's, and I just didn't shut up about it, I thought this guy's incredible and while, you know, from about the age of nine to the age of 22, Two, I kept tabs on his career because I thought maybe one day I'll work with him as Kenneth, more or later. Oh wow! Yeah, oh. and you know who's like one of my closest collaborators, and I've written, I've, I wrote a role for him, and um, so that's pretty beautiful. Um, yeah, because I felt I saw him, and I thought if he can do it, maybe I can. So yeah, he yeah, that that was right.
0: And well, you know, you talked earlier about your obsession with musical theatre and wanting to be a character man. Yeah. I guess you weren't seeing your your cultural heritage represented on stage. No, I mean... Even, were a lot of Anglos yeah. in those yeah, you know, shows. Even but Anglos played Coco yeah. and Peter.
1: I mean, I mean even though it's <laughs> terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, you the know. The Mikado. Yeah, the yeah. Mikado. Like, I think... Um, yeah, and it kind of stemmed even from when I, I
0: looked at programs, because I loved theatre programs. I still do. I bet you um, savoured every profile and you could name every ensemble member from, yeah. from those musicals it's pretty during, weird. during the 90s. Oh, no, I think it's great. I yeah, mean, you talk right. to a lot of kids today and they have no idea, you know. And you yeah. think, well, how vested are you in knowing your industry and the people yeah. that you could possibly be working with? Who are the creatives out there? Yeah. Who are the designers, the directors? It's And I've worked with older
1: actors as well of that vintage. And they find it really flattering when I say, oh, yeah, you know, that was with um, X, Y, Z, you know. I worked with Anna Lee uh, on a play called Snap Season. Sister of Mark. Yeah, sister of Mark, sister of Mark. And she... Who was in Gallipoli. Who was in Gallipoli. I'm just
0: putting the frame around it Yes, for the yeah, yes, absolutely.
1: Yes. And that, that's a wonderful family because her son is a sound designer. Great family. And Anna said to me, oh, I did nine. And I said, oh, with John Diedrich. You know, and um, Judy Kennelly,
0: I think. I think it was Judy Kennelly. No. No? No, no. Nancy Hayes.
1: Yeah, Nancy Hayes. Yes, Nancy Marie Mercedes.
0: Mercedes. Yes. Jackie Reese. Tina yeah. Arena.
1: Tina Arena, yeah. Carolyn Gilmer. Yes, Carolyn Gilmer. Yeah, All these. Yes, and Anna Lee. And no? Anna
0: Lee, of course. Anna Lee. One of the best nights I've had in the theatre. Nine. And Jenny and Anderson. Me. I don't know if you
1: know Jenny Anderson as no, well. No. She's a talent agent now and her Berta son. Nicholson. Yeah yeah yes but I said John Dietrich and she loved that and I think she liked the emphasis on the fact that I knew what they what she'd done because I had the record you know and um, that was really important because you'd hate to have older actors walk in there and not feel that they're you know respected because we really need to respect our
0: theatrical elders well I think that's what impressed me about you when I've been getting to know you over previous months. You know this this kid who's twenty seven, yeah, who has the head of a you know sixty year old or the the, the knowledge of yeah. a sixty year old yeah. about our industry <laughs> and yeah, history, yeah. which is really um, attractive for people that that think, hey, you know what, what you're talking about really. Uh, and I liken it to you know Tony Sheldon talks about when he went to Broadway. He was so embraced by that community because he knew them all, he knew yeah. their work, he knew their history
1: yeah and he i mean that that kind of mature age approach feeds into my work a lot um you know like i i try to write from an older person's perspective and all that kind of comes back to when because my parents are older i grew up with with adults you know i didn't there weren't a lot of kids and my parents made sure that i was very kind of um culturally aware. So my mum took me to see The Birds on my ninth birthday. The, the, Hitchcock, the Hitchcock film. The Hitchcock film. Right. Right. And um, I loved it. And they took me to see Marcel Marceau. I was very lucky. You know, so, yeah, it's kind of from that upbringing. You know, my dad's in his late 60s. My mum's in her mid-60s. And they're completely, you know, cognizant and healthy. It's just that they really do... They really always just put an emphasis on the old you know i love buddy holly what kind of 10 year old loves buddy holly i loved elvis you know it was weird mm. weird child a friend of mine came over for dinner who i've known since he was it's for about no five or six so over 20 years and he said to me you were you introduced me to david bowie and i said i oh, was that i oh, was that precarious as a kid i probably told you i knew him you know like just silly
0: things like that so I love the olds, and I still do. But you've garnered so many reference points, I guess. Yeah. In that in that time.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like we like who who did what, and yeah, you kind of just get very oh, yeah. But yeah the gossip too, probably the gossip. The go- yeah, a little bit, little bit. But anyone can if they put their mind to it. Absolutely, and they have the passion and the interest. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So where did you grow up, Jordan? I grew up in Karing Bar in New South Wales and in Rockdale as well. So I moved to Rockdale when I was. Um, eleven. Oh no, yeah, about twelve. Twelve.
0: We moved to Rockdale, um, in the south of Sydney. Yeah, yep. were you part of the Rockdale Musical Society because they've got quite a, a, a decent community no, theatre group established there? My no? parents, no, they, my parents really didn't want me to do it. Didn't want you to be a performer or no. to go into the showbiz. Not really, not really. Um, Did they have aspirations that you'd be a doctor or a lawyer? Oh, look,
1: no Asian mother wants her only son to become an artist. Um, (laughs) um, That's a generalisation. No, I think they wanted me to be a diplomat. They really wanted me to, to be in foreign affairs, even as a child, I remember that. And it was kind of very interesting for me because... I loved that industry and I loved shows and everything. And my school was very performative. St. Mary's Cathedral College, you know, very performative. Um, school concert rolled around every year. It was the greatest night of my life. You know, I remember, it was on at Sydney Town Hall. I still get chills whenever I walk through it or buy it. You know, so yeah, it's elect- it was electrifying for me. Um, but I never really got, I never did drama. And outside of school, I never... I, I craved it. I craved it.
0: You must have been a good English student. Yeah, Yeah. very. Yeah, <laughs> I, think, I think so. I loved words. Did you have teachers that encouraged that talent? Yeah, I had
1: a uh, few. I had a few in the early years. Senior years, not so much early years. Well, well I got taught by um, Melina Marquetta, who wrote Looking for Allah Brandy." Right. Yeah, she... Um... I actually haven't spoken about this in a while she said to me as a kid you know she said if you stick to it you could really write something that's all she said and i pretty well ignored that until later and we lost track over the years because her career has obviously skyrocketed my career you know has started to do something and, and she and i got in contact with her recently and now we have a really nice little dialogue going on but she was extremely encouraging and the other encouraging teacher i had was a guy called russell smith <laughs> he was the way he spoke the way he executed words and the way he executed language for me got me so excited And he told my mom a parent teacher he's like he should be reading you know he had that voice he should be reading um orwell he should be reading orwell and and steinbeck stein so my mum went out you know like any mother and just bought me all these books so I read you know 1984 and Grapes, um, of and Grapes of Wrath Animal Farm of Mice and Men you know and that was my beginning and I loved language I didn't like any of the analytical stuff that came with English I loved the creative language I loved describing things and the, the piece of advice that Melina said to me was she said make sure Jordan you put the person there you put the person where you want to see them where they can see where you what you are seeing so that never left me
0: yeah it's amazing how a comment that a teacher makes can just gestate there in the back of the forever yeah forever you can pull it up whenever you need it
1: yeah and it was she taught me when I was 13 so it wasn't at a year that I really took that on board it was a year where you're like a sponge you know where you you know, you're a teacher. You it's, you take it all in. Yeah. So
0: yeah, it stayed with me. It's still with me forever. Yeah. What was the first play or musical you saw which really had an impact on you? Oh, there's two. Yeah. Pan at the Capitol Theatre. Uh, the Peter Pan musical. Jacobsons. It? Jacobsons yeah. did it. Yeah. Did you? Did was it you... Jacobson or Jules? Was it Kerry Jules? And.
1: It may, no, the Jacobsons ran The Capital. Right. So they, I guess, produced it. Right. And that was in the period of time where they produced it. And I think it was Kerry Jules. Were you yeah. in it? No, no, no. No. Okay. Um, but that had a huge impact on me. My dad took me out of school to see it 2000. It was the year 2000. So 20 years ago. And Stuart Wagstaff was in it. Yes, he played Smee, I think. No, Daniel Mitchell played Smee. Oh, right. He played old Cookson. Bill, uh, Bill Kerr narrated it as J.M. Barry. That's right.
0: And Christopher, somebody uh, came in. He was in Dynasty at the time and played Hook. Captain Hook. No, it was
1: <laughs> it was actually Philip Quast. It was
0: Phil Quast. He'd come back from England to play Hook. He might have taken over. I'm sure there was a guy called Christopher. Somebody out there will correct it. We'll ring Tony Sheldon. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah actually,
1: I'll, I'll message him after and we'll see. But, um, but people know that... I know, I know an actor who
0: played Michael anyway. So there you go. Is that which Darren Bethel? Oh, yes, yeah. Who was Christopher Robin when I played Eeyore. Oh. But anyway, we're going to Gary Gen... with Gary Ginnivan. Yes. Oh, with like Stephen Ritchie and yes, yes, yeah. Steve directed it and uh, DJ Foster. God, lovely. And him, Rod played... Waterworth, lovely Rod. Um, Winnie the Pooh. Yeah,
1: yes. yeah, right. Well, I got to know him when I lived in Melbourne at VCA. But yeah, that 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 show was amazing because Jim Henson did the puppetry and the uh-huh. crocodile came out of the floor and um and tinkerbell flew across the flew across the ceiling and then um troy woodcroft was peter pan yep. flew across the arena you know long before mary poppins even thought about it You know, it was amazing it it was incredible and the fight that they had and it was it was so beautiful um and then the first play that I remember seeing uh, that really had an impact on me was in high school. It was by Stefano Natsu. Do you know
0: him? I know the name. Yeah, yeah,
1: he runs a theatre company that tours around for students. It was called Australia versus South Africa at Wharf at the Wharf 2. And it was beautiful. He used mime, movement, so good. Yeah, it was great. He had sound effects. It was wonderful. So was it a theatre and education? It was a theatre and education it, right? piece, yeah. yeah and um, uh, Robin Nevin was the artistic director at the time and commissioned them to kind of create plays that really educated and educated us on racism, educated us on class, you know, made us care, it was beautiful and I remember the opening, they went around and as security guards pretending to check people's bags and I thought that was so funny because I didn't know whether they were real, so that was the idea of me bridging the gap between
0: the theatre and real world, like yeah. So it was great. It was great. Tell me about your recent work, Casa Makita. Yeah. Good good job on that. It's uh, Kasama. Kasama. Yeah, yeah. All right. That's Kasam- all right. Kasama Makita. That's all right. So what, that's obviously Filipino. Mm. What does it mean? I'm with you. Right. Yeah. Did the, the play have biographical elements? I, totally. Yeah?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, um, it was based on my mother. It was based in... The first act was pretty well based on my mum coming out here in 1974 in October when Whitlam was on the brink of his second victory. And I say that because the backdrop of that, the play was really written and performed at a time when we are currently in this real conservatism. And I kind of wanted the audiences to see how free things were back then compared to what it's like now. Yeah. And so I interviewed my mom and and her friends and uh, about, you know, what it was like to come out here as an 18, 19 year old and just see things and experience things. They were living under a dictatorship at the time. So the freedoms and the luxuries had nothing, you know, it was nothing compared to what you could do here. And I really wanted to make sure going back to Melina's comment, putting put the audience there. I wanted to take the audience on that journey to show them what they were experiencing. So experiencing a gay club for the first time at 19 was pretty, you know, hectic and I did a lot of interviewing for that and traced back to Oxford Street, looked at old books, you know. So was that
0: character played by Kenneth based on a Yeah.
1: Uh based on a couple of characters, a couple of people that I interviewed. Right. I call them like the Oxford Street mainstays, you know. They're still they're still alive and right. still Yeah, they're survivors. Mm. It was a biographical, you know, element and a biographical play because I believe anyone who has come to this country, made something of themselves, has survived. And I love writing about survivors, people that are just weathering change, you know. And I love plays about survivors. Um, That's why I love things like King Lear, you know. Aging and, you know, that kind of... What is stopping this person from changing? Is it them or is it the time? So, yeah,
0: I know I wanted a bit of a tangent there.
1: <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yeah.
0: but, but, but with the characters within that play, you know, there's a gay man, yeah. there are several women, yeah. there's an older Australian woman. Yeah. How do you get into the heads of those characters? Um,
1: I've always prided myself on being able to mimic So, vo- vocally. So it's weird because I have never actually talked about this. When I write, I say the words the way I imagine out loud, so you're writing in rhythms and yeah, I write in rhythms. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So if you know, Antero, the gay man, you know, because you know he'd be like, "I walk, I see everything for the first time." You know, just mystical and it's funny and it's buoyant. And if you write like an older white woman who's kind of racist, you know, yeah, oh, yeah, what I don't know. You know, everything drags it's on. It's right? heavy. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. it's um. I was always obsessed with accents. As a kid, so I I kind of have always had that mimicry in there, knowing how they want to speak and how I would like them to talk. And fortunately, in most of the work I've done, the characters have sounded the way I've intended. And it is about getting into those characters really. Like, I do a lot of research, you know, whether it's interviewing people, whether it's my next work, I'm. Of driving around to a lot of locations just to get a feel for certain things. So I do, I do the equivalent to like, I guess a Stanislavski kind of research, you know, because I want, I want to be as accurate as possible because you've got to respect, you've got to respect the characters that you're writing because I think actors, the most inherently gifted people in the, like in the industry. I say that because the amount of work that they have to do You want to make that as easy as possible by being as generous, by giving them, you know, so much on the page, by giving them those complex rhythms, you know, to empower them, really.
0: You're giving Australian theatre a really essential voice in the Filipino voice. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Are you right... Is that your main focus, to put Filipino stories on the stage? Or are you... Go to it's prob- eventually write your own. Um, I mean, all stories are universal, I guess. and it's yeah. finding the key for that.
1: It's it's. I think it's about. I'm. Most of my stories contain people of all, all of them. All of my current plays being worked on are about people of color, mainly Asian people, majority Filipino people. Yes, but I think it's more or less about kind of looking at. Plays like Kasama, as you know, Filipino Australian works, and just making sure that they sit in the canon as a story of the people that have supported our healthcare system. Having said that, there is a while to go with that because you know, you need to establish yourself before you kind of move your way into normalizing, because I'm all about normalizing diversity. That for me is, if I see a Filipino person on stage, it makes me feel great, but that's normal for me because that's how I've grown up. Um, And I think that's, for for me, that's kind of very resonant with everyone as well. So, you know, queer cultures, queer communities, you know, indigenous people, we have to normalize that sense of the theater because that is normal to us and to them and, and to everyone. You know, that's normal to see themselves on stage because they're the communities that we live in. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. <laughs> absolutely. Great, yeah. Thank you for coming to my TED
0: Talk. Oh, no, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Big stadium here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than the Trump rally, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. That doesn't take much yeah. competition, it would seem, at the moment. Oh! It's fabulous. It is. Are you... Whose footsteps are you following in? Have there been... Um, obviously there's been a, f- a smattering of Asian writers beforehand, but, but Filipino especially. Oh, um,
1: I have th- in the industry that I look up to, uh, there's a handful. I mean, Von Patiag, who's a couple of years older than me and he works in film and he also works in theater. I look up to him to no end because I think he's so self sufficient and independent. But in terms of, people like the footsteps that I've followed through. I haven't really established Filipino wise who I would like to emulate or or whether I want to emulate anyone. I personally would like to remain my own voice. There's so many people in the industry though, that I look up to Shakti who wrote counting and cracking, um, Kenneth, you know, because I think he's worked his way through an industry, you know, being kind of funny and being supporting and, and now he's working to kind of make himself a mainstay. Um, and a number of other people, people like uh, Pascal Berry, um, Miranda Aguilar, who's coming up, you know, in the ranks. I kind of see myself as always just looking at them and, and thinking that in 10 years' time, when the next, you know, crop of Asian writers or whatever, or POC writers come through NIDA or VCA or just are out there creating work, that I feel it's going to be safe, you know? It's Mm -hmm. going to be a a more, um, you know, reflective landscape of what we're living in.
0: Yeah. The Kasamakita audience. Yeah. Was that as pleasing as you wanted in the the faces that you saw turn up?
1: I felt like I could have... I I felt like I could have retired. I was (laughs) was so happy. Because we were the second... um, highest-selling show in that space, in Belvoir. And the producer, Emma Diaz of Aya Productions, she really made sure that we were out there. So SBS picked us up. Sydney Morning Herald picked us up. People that I hadn't seen came to see the show. And there's one particular story, if I may share. Well, that yeah, if I may share. That's why you're on the show. Yeah, well, that's... (laughs) share away oh so I'm 27 I'm not I'm, like <laughs> I'm 50 my mum's old housemates came and saw the show um, from the uh, mid 70s they'd lost track of her my mum's a really private woman and when the SBS interview which took a lot of arm twisting went live they saw her and they just went crazy they were so excited wow so they came they got in touch but I think that the story for me about the people that came, I mean, there's so many, I've wrote, I've written it all down too. I've written so many of these down because there were so many wonderful reactions. I've seen people wipe tears from their eyes, applaud. You know, my aunties who'd never really been to Surrey Hills came to Surrey Hills, and, you know, it was amazing. But a gentleman came to see the show and he was in a, like a mobile scooter. And I thought, you know, who is this man? Um. And he was my year nine homeroom teacher, right? And he's quite ill now. He has a degenerative illness, but he's quite, like, he was completely cognizant, and he is completely cognizant and completely able. I was overcome with emotion. I didn't know how to approach him. So I sat up the back of the theatre, like, way up the back, and it was packed. And they got him a seat down the front, they took his wheelchair out. Um, and he couldn't stand at the end of the show, when they gave a standing ovation, he got himself up. Wow. And, um, I just thought, well, yeah, I'm in the right place because it's done that for someone that I know, but it'll probably do that for someone that I don't as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And he... You know, I remembered him as
0: the minute he stood up and the light shone on his face and, yeah. You go, that, but that healing property of theatre as well, oh. you know, that he can get himself up to stand. Yeah. And... Uh, and forget all of that pain just for a few seconds while he...
1: Yeah, and he, he's, he's not that well as well. I, I was really stunned by him because he was a tough teacher and we kind of resented him as kids. But it made a lot of sense. Um, his teaching practices as, as I've become a teacher myself and as I've gotten yes. a little older. and Yeah, that was really moving because he, he loved it. He absolutely loved it. And he'd seen the article in the Sydney Morning Herald. I mean, there was no, I couldn't ask for anything more. Hmm. I could not ask for anything more. If it was in a bigger theatre, I would have lost him. But because it was in a smaller theatre, I got to see him, and you know, and just that I had people write lovely emails, letters to me, uh, from like the gay community, the Filipino community, thanking me for representation. That is just there's nothing, nothing more I could have asked for.
0: I guess you learn a lot from watching an audience as well. Yeah. Watch your work. Yeah, you yeah, yeah. Do you make? Did you make changes as the season went on? yeah i did i made edits i made little edits of the season yeah actors would have loved that yeah
1: well (laughs) ken and uh, you know monica and all that they they would you know like actors do they hear a laugh for the first time they got to follow it you know and they just go with their instincts and they'd bring it to speed and a lot of a lot of the rewriting was done because of them it was an entirely collaborative exercise And I took it because I think as a young writer, as an emerging writer, which apparently I'm not anymore anyway, but, um, (laughs) you have to be susceptible to that kind of stuff. You have to be susceptible to that kind of feedback. You know, um, my head of theater, when I was at Notre Dame university said to me, hold on tightly, let go lightly. That's also stayed with me. You know, you just don't grow too attached to things, but defend it if you want. Defenders stand. You know, talk with conviction in those rooms to make sure that you really are getting your point across.
0: Something which I, I'm quite saddened about is a lot of Australian plays. They have their premiere and they're well received, yeah. but you never see them again. It's, Sad. It's very few Australian plays that have uh, yeah are remounted several years later or become part of the you know the the classic Australian canon. Or even get published, or even go overseas.
1: You know, there's very few, yeah. I I don't know how much of a revival culture will be developed in this country. Because I think we are very much of a culture now. You know, you go onto Netflix, what's next? What's next? You go onto Stan, what's next? What am I seeing? You go to some fringe festival, what am I seeing tomorrow night? So a writer might be like, "That's close. What do I write next?" When really, and I used to be like that, I think a writer should go, "How can I improve this to make sure it's seen by more people?" Because then you ensure a revival culture. because our classic canon, I mean, Tommy gets a few revivals, hmm. and it's great, but there's so much, especially from our indigenous playwrights, that just just falls.
0: You know, and I've seen so much over the years. I mean, The Drover's Wife, you know, recently at Belvoir Street, which what people said was just extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Deserves to be seen again and again and again. But where's the company that's going to pick that up and do it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, forget the commercial theatre. Commercial plays aren't done. No. You know, they have to be part of a company.
1: No, and, you know, we're going to see 50,000 summers of the 17th dole before you yeah. see a second Kasama. I mean... Yeah. <laughs> I away. Mean, you know, away, yeah. Um, and the uh,
0: removalists. Uh,
1: yeah yeah and i mean look they're they're plays that in all due respect they hold up right they hold up and they're money makers and they are educational as well they feed into the drama syllabus a lot of the time but at the end of the day for each australian revival you put on there's going to be a new work that falls through the cracks yeah in my honest opinion Yep. Yeah, yeah. and there's way too much out there to continue falling through the cracks
0: because of the number of playwrights, and there's so few stages to yeah. to present that work.
1: Yeah, and and it's merging; it's getting bigger. The amount of the amount of playwrights out there, I think,
0: you know. And do you think audiences want to sort of invest their money on on a sure bet, something they know, or that has a an actor in it they know, rather than something completely that, that they've never heard of, and maybe has a cast of unknowns as well? Yeah. I find it exciting going to that theatre, I must admit. But I'm sure a lot of the punters...
1: Oh, you, you must be in my head a bit because there's no story I'm going to tell you. Kasama was on at the same time as Packer and Sons. Upstairs? Yeah. So you saw... Oh, jeez. I have a friend of mine. When Packer and Sons finished at the end, like the, all the punters would come down and she said to me, oh, here come the boomers. And it's just like they just kind of come down like that scene in Jumanji. You know, the, with the rhinos and all that. I'm <laughs> probably into ivory. No, I um, and uh, yeah, & Sons was on, and I was sitting outside, uh, outside the theater one night, and this is like you couldn't write this. I was sitting outside waiting for my Uber, and this lovely couple walked up, and they, they said, um, oh, I wonder what's playing downstairs, and the woman said to him. I won't see it if I can't pronounce it. Heartbreaking. Wow. Heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. So, yeah, I mean, wider audiences won't see anything that they're scared of. A majority, you know, the general public. People like yourself, people like theatre-goers will want to take that risk because we are taking that risk up there. And, um, yeah, I think they still, you know, familiarity is really comfortable with people. I mean, you know, growing up, or when I was, you know, late teens, early 20s, and go and see all the musicals, Bert was in everything. Never got it, never understood, but people loved him. You know? So, yeah. It, uh, familiarity is really big. Is really, really big for them, mm. for people. And I get it.
0: I read a very eloquent essay that you wrote, Kasama Keita, More Than Ping-Pong Balls. <laughs> yeah. Are we getting better in the way that that um characters of diversity are presented on the on the stage i mean you know you cited a whole lot of um filipino characters who were there for for comic value Mm. i
1: i would i would like to think yes but i still think um the accessibility of those characters to be written poorly is still there As in, I think there are still a lot of people that would view it as
0: okay. Um, I mean, you talk about Priscilla, you know, the character... Sure, sure. With the ping pong balls, that's where the title of the essay got its name. And
1: my friend played her, and she loves that character as well. And she's a Filipino actor. She's a Filipino actor. We've worked together. And she finds it empowering. I think there's a generational thing there, though. Um... Priscilla and look, Priscilla is is one one show, you know, one film that represents, you know, Southeast Asian women in Australia. And I'm sad. I'm sad that it's a go to. Um but I think that we in order for us to get better at representing these characters, especially Asian characters, the gatekeepers or or When I say gatekeepers, I mean artistic directors, executive producers, literary managers need to read a script or consult or employ assistants who are of the diaspora to read and see if it is problematic and then say, flag this immediately and say, this is problematic. This shouldn't be. This shouldn't be put on. It's going to offend people. It's going to hurt people. But more, more enough, it's going to disempower people which is the worst mm. yeah so I think that it really depends on who's reading the scripts I think it's still easy for um, you know a, a person to write a play with a character of Asian descent that would be seen as stereotypical or problematic or or anything like that
0: well another musical you know Muriel's Wedding you know, the Asian character oh, yeah. isn't that? you know which our yeah. dear friend Kenneth yeah played Kenneth. In the original yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the um, Chinese restaurant yeah. Stuff. Dance monkey dance. If yeah. They say the the da-
1: dance monkey. Yeah. They say dance monkey. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw that on opening night with him. My only thing is when I look at him and I've seen him in beautiful plays and I've seen him in my own work and I know how undeniably creative he is. And David Ooch, who played, um, the other, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Japanese businessman. um, and i know what they're capable of like i know that the, the huge amount of work that they are capable of so yeah it, it that representation really needs to stop you know I, I think shows like anything goes you know with the luke and john characters thoroughly modern millie yeah thoroughly modern millie um you know, I'm not in musical theatre. That's not my area. So there are complex layers to it that I can't really go into. But at the end of the day, if it's going to stir up a debate, right, and you're a producer, you're sitting there on Facebook and you're watching all the posts and everyone's blowing up and blah, blah, and, you know, people are getting rightfully angry, wouldn't you have wanted to done have done something that didn't do that? And of which there are so many of those things out there? That's my opinion anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You would have wanted to do something that didn't take up the airspace negatively and just, uh, you know, done something that was constructive.
0: But there's so many works of those previous generations which which had that content, whether it's big content or a small element, which yeah. are really problematical for, for those shows going forward and being produced yeah. now, unless they are reimagined or have swift editing. Or... Yeah, I mean, so you think things like South
1: Pacific, yeah. right? So things like... Happy talk. Yeah, so Bloody Mary. I'm I'm not that familiar with Rodgers and Hammerstein's, but I mean things like that. I mean that was only done six, seven years ago. I saw it, right? Yes. But I don't. I don't think that there's a place for it at the moment. Having said that, it won't stop it from from being performed. I just personally, I know the upset and I know the hurt that it would cause. I know the anger. So why damage a community when you can channel, you know, the amount of money that it took to put South Pacific on and create a new work or something, you know? I mean, that's that's my honest... And there are people out there that have stronger views on it, and I guess I do as well, but I'm, I'm choosing my words carefully purely because I do run the risk, right, of getting, you know hounded I don't don't want to I don't want to piss anyone off but I'm I'm with I'm with my community when I say that those those musicals you know they have a place in your home Hmm. um doesn't mean that you can't say how wonderful that they are but be prepared for debate these days what do you think of a film like Crazy Rich Asians yeah it's um it's funny it's really funny oh it's funny it's It's really sexy it's sleek yeah that was good that was... Peter Carroll was in that? Yeah. yeah I mean, I love that. I loved... See, there you go. I'm colonised. I've talked about the white person. Yeah. yeah. Um, but... but He was the minority. In but, yeah, it was, you know, like five minutes. Um, no, I really like that film. I really like that film. And, and um, Always Be My Maybe um, is another great one. And Parasite, you know? Oh, yeah. Great films. Wow. Great films. Yeah. So, I, I think... I think I'm positive about it. I'm positive about the change, you know, because I think the more and more that we rally, the more and more that we exercise our ideas, you know, the more and more, and you have to eloquent, you have to be eloquent about it as well. You know, I don't think, I think getting angry is great, but also just get angry with your eloquence, you know, be firm in that way, use the language to make sure that people know that something that they've done you feel isn't right. Yeah. Flag it.
0: Yeah. Who are the playwrights that inspire you that you really admire? Uh, Shakti, um, Shakti Dharan, who wrote Counting and
1: Cracking, Tennessee Williams.
0: Of course. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Have you been to his house? No. In no, Key we... West? <laughs> All right. You need, you need I to thought it might've been, uh, in no, in Burwood. Or something. no, Burwood. No, Burwood. Yeah, Burwood. Burwood no, right. yeah, Burwood. No, um, <laughs> um Key West. Um,
0: Ah, uh, Patricia Cornelius. Tracy Letts. 100% Tracy Letts. Tell me about Superior Donuts, oh. because I saw that on Broadway as well. Did you? Michael yeah, McKean. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, great play. Tracy Letts. So, and didn't they turn into a sitcom for a while? Yeah, it was with Judd Hirsch. It was awful. Hmm. Um, But Tracy Letts' Superior Donuts, I saw, because my parents travelled heaps. Right. And very, very privileged to, to be able to travel, and we went everywhere, and we saw superior donuts and I remember he wrote this line that said, um, ponytails only look good on two things, women and ponies. And I just found that really funny. And that night at the theater, I thought, Oh, he's, this is really clever. You know, there's an older gentleman, right? Who's fighting gentrifying change in a donut shop. You know, he's a man of, there were just complex layers to it. And I really liked that work I really love that work Tracy Letts's, um piece and and other plays uh, yeah Raimondo cortesi who taught me at the VCA um, Lachlan Philpot as well has a really beautiful way with words um, there's so many a lot of Australians and you know people like and truly Felicia King as well who wrote white pearl you know I mean she's she's a hero yes and and um
0: I saw at the Melbourne Theatre Company Gold last Shield. year. Golden Gold Shield, Shield, fantastic, yeah. Right, like yeah. it's real, and I want, I want to see that. It's so dense and writing in different time frames and, and yeah. different languages, G- different languages, uh, you know, different dialects, different characters.
1: I mean, you talk about people that get into the mind frames. She gets into our generation. She satirises our generation better than anyone I know, because yeah. we deserve
0: to be satirised. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you, I reckon we do.
0: I reckon we do. Are you good at, um, when you finish the script, handing that over to the company to present every night? Can you, can you let go? Are you happy father to say, fly, be free, be happy?
1: Yeah, I had to do that. Um, I only saw Kasama about uh, five times. Um, and even then, an established playwright friend of mine said, oh, it's too much. Don't, don't say it five times. Um, but... I I am, I am good like that. I'm really good like that because it's not my play. I always try and say, you're gonna come to Belvoir, you're gonna come to the old 505 to see our play. Cause it's our play. I'm not putting the lights on. I don't paint the set. I do sometimes, no, I have done that, but you know, we've all done that. I'm not doing the costuming, it's our play you know so yeah I am and you have to be if you want longevity because that equals easy to work with you know and it's not you can't you can't be you you, I think you should be militant in what you want to say I think you should always stand with conviction and speak with conviction about what you want to say but I think you should always let the right people in the room to say what you know you think is right to take that all in
0: you're currently one of the philip parsons fellows at belvoir theater yeah what does that entail well it
1: was originally
0: um a fellowship for one
1: person but they branched it out and took on um six of us so five writers and a dramaturg for the year um and our year has been kind of thrown up by covid but also, it's been put into perspective a lot. We're all writing. We're all writing pieces that we're presenting and pitching to the company within, you know, within Belvoir. So we're working as working artists within Belvoir. So we have access to really great dramaturgical minds. People like Lou Goff, Don Mercer. Um, what does a dramaturg do? Oh, I, oh, this is big. Okay. So a dramaturg, and I was reading this in the Where it biography, right? right floor, the, of floor of Heaven. Yeah. Floor of Heaven, which you put me onto. Yeah. You know,
0: um, wouldn't you have loved to have interviewed him? Sorry, oh yeah, yeah. wouldn't you just? What what a mind, Richard Warett, and um, a career. Yeah, yeah. Time in London, and then coming back to run the Sydney Theatre Company, and yeah,
1: yeah. And um, we were talking about dramaturg. Dramaturg. He talked about how you know I think he said dramaturg was born out in you know Peter Brook time in London, like the modern day dramaturg. It's German meaning. I think um, A dramaturg for me So what does a dramaturg do? Yeah I think they look at what the story engine of your play is So what this story is about Okay, what you need and what you don't need It's more, more of a You know, less of an editor More of an advocate if they really love the work And we need more of them So when I trained at BCA We had a Masters of Dramaturgy Running next to us and there are four dramaturgs there. And the way that they read plays was second to none. They were wonderful at it. They knew what playwrights were saying. You know, they knew the canon back back and forth. You know, you think my history is good, their
0: history is much better. And I guess they're looking at the play from the perspective of the, of the audience, of the actor. Yeah, of the audience, um, mainly of the actor.
1: Um, And eventually, you know, most good dramaturgs wind up as literary managers, literary directors, you know, seeking out plays, you know, reading plays and plays upon plays. It's a dream job. I don't think I could do it because I don't have the capacity to read that much in a week and in in timed reading. But, yeah, that's what a dramaturg does for me. And we we need really good ones, really, really good ones. And dramaturgy is the practice of that.
0: And who was Philip Parsons?
1: I think he was Catherine Brisbane's husband. He was indeed. Yeah? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was scary. Imagine if I didn't know that. (laughs) Imagine. Wow. (laughs) That would have been really scary. Who was Philip?
0: Yeah. Well, he was a a really respected theatre academic. Yes. um, Who made his mark also as a director. Yeah. A dramaturg. Yeah. And a mentor and publisher at at Currency Press. Currency Press, Yeah. yeah. Um, Catherine still gets along to most of
1: the shows. Um, Who's one of our great reviewers. Yeah. And it's interesting with reviewers, right? Because this country doesn't have a critic culture. I think maybe it did. Um, But I would love to see its critical culture flourish more. Do you read reviews? Yeah. You take note of them? Well, there's one... There's a big reason for that. It was when I wrote my first play. I thought, um, I don't want to read the reviews. And the first review was Susie Wrong from Susie See. She'd started up the blog maybe a year earlier. It was a horrible play I wrote. Piece of dirt. (laughs) It was so bad. Anyway,
0: the house at Boundary Road. No, no, that Mm -hmm. was. Liverpool. No, that was Cage. No,
1: no, no. no, no, These were okay. Barbaric
0: truth. Last drinks?
1: No. Um, a <laughs> little different. What's the other one? Jeez. Cascadia. Oh, wow. Yeah. What's, what's, have you got? No, that's all the list I've oh, got there, be Jordan. Because yeah. I haven't put it there because I'm so embarrassed, embarrassed by of it. it. Yeah. Okay. It's called It's Been a While and it was oh, about okay. teenage angst. So mm. I've never touched that topic again. Um, she wrote that it was a gallant step forward for theatre makers. And for me, I read that as keep trying, keep going. Right. So without her, I wouldn't, I don't think I would have kept going and um, so I do read reviews I, I also read reviews of other people's shows as well just as on a critical academic level you know to, to see how they're structured and I'm not by the big newspapers not really I'm not that impressed by things like Time Out Audrey Journal I generally yeah I love what they've said hmm. um, and I think some people respond better than others but yeah we don't have that you know, criticism culture in this country. You know, we'll we'll more likely see a panel of, you know, ex-football players with hamstring injuries giving their thoughts on the state of origin rather than a panel of critics giving their thoughts on a player called the state of the origins. I don't know. There you go. (laughs) Take that, hey?
0: So what next uh, in this time of love and cholera? (laughs) (laughs)
1: love and cholera um well i'm completing a play called the grocer yeah which is a play written for an actor of 80
0: Um, i love it already i love the title i love that there's a um um, i don't want a veteran a a senior a mature actor in it
1: yeah yeah are you available no i uh, (laughs) am uh um yeah, it's a play about a gentleman that is living in a rapidly gentrifying suburb and he owns one of the very last convenience stores, right? And one day a young street kid comes in to rob him and they spark a friendship and a relationship. Kind of similar to Superior Donuts, yeah. but it's a lot less cleaner. He hasn't got much going for him. He's sick and he's got a past and his shop's falling apart. And he doesn't really have much left, so what originally was a very complex play about capitalism and gentrification and is now a play about aging and humanity, and more importantly, it's a play about why we have to care about young people and why we have to care about the elderly
0: two well. two hander
1: It's actually three right. yeah, possibly four,
0: <laughs> but I think it's I think it's only three. do you find that that you have to? Use a smaller company of actors in order, the hope of being produced. Yes, yeah. The bigger the cast, the less likely it is to be picked up. Yeah, I mean you hear stories about
1: you know the fifth character having to be written out in order to save money. Um. or you know, there was a meeting when I first came back to Sydney, where they said, um, oh, how many characters? Oh, five. Ooh. Ooh, five characters. And I said, yeah. Well, it doesn't work without...
0: Can they double up?
1: Yeah, I said, what? Put a <laughs> wig on, you know? I mean... Um, but I, I think Australian theatre would flourish if there were more 10-, 15-person
0: shows. Totally. Who were Tennessee Williams and, and Brecht? I mean, the, the cast size that they were Tracy Letts for. as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hugh, Hugh. Osage, uh, uh, yeah. yeah, uh August Osage County. Yeah. But then we've thrived here
1: by people like Patricia Cornelius writing three handers that are just so compelling Hmm. people like Ramondo Cortese. And I refer to these people because when I studied at VCA, they were the people that I read that made me realize that what I'd been reading was so vanilla and so, um, gentle. They showed me a world that I felt that I wanted to be a part of as well. Um, yeah, but you know, they, they kind of wrote intimate little, you know, beautiful stories. And then you see something like Anthem at the Sydney Festival, um, which was written by Christos, Melissa Reeves, Andrew Pavel, and Patricia Cornelius. That, that had a massive cast. Only played for five nights at the Sydney Festival. But, geez, I wish it could have played, mm. you know, big cast. I miss. Big, I love big cast shows. Oh, and as an actor also, being
0: part of that company yeah, this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, well, Nickleby, as you're talking about. Oh, The Life and Adventures of Nicholas Nickleby. Yeah, Nickelby. there you yeah. go yeah big stories big stories harp in the south
1: you know yeah i that that, mean that was great yeah yeah but I, I like that and hopefully one day we'll get to a point where that becomes the norm i think we have to become a theater going culture to become the norm i don't know how i'm going to do that maybe just be annoying <laughs> maybe just be persistent well yes it's the
0: uh, squeaky wheel that gets oiled yeah that's right that's right i like that saying oh. Well, long may you continue to squeak, Mr. <laughs> Shea. Oh, um, uh, you're great. Have you enjoyed this chat? Good? Yeah, I have. I've had a ball. It's great. I'm, yeah. glad you, I'm glad you sent an email and we followed it up. Yeah. A couple of years later. Yeah, you know,
1: Michael Kirby wrote. Oh, sorry, he's dropping names. Uh, Michael Kirby wrote me a card once and he said, You're persistent, slash, annoying, but it'll open doors for you as it did for me. And, um, and I, I just thought, oh, you know, so I've always kind of been self-conscious of it. But when you get to be able to, you know, elocute really important messages and also, you know, archive this. Because hopefully one day there'll be a playwright out there, you know, Filipino or, you know, whatever, 20, younger, that will hear that and think, oh, okay, he did it. Maybe I can as well.
0: Jordan Shea is a theatre maker to watch and also he's expressing a very important voice, the Asian-Australian voice uh, on our stages. So uh, do, if you see, see the name attached to any plays, go straight to the box office. Thanks for making us part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages Podcast is released every Thursday. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Today, my guest was Jordan Shea. Keep warm, keep well. I'll catch you next time.